Hello and welcome to the Red Housewife Podcast. Today's topic is the wrongful, I guess you could say, detainment of Chicago social worker Anjanette Young. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, you can do so at anchor.fm slash the Red Housewife or on Twitter at the Red Housewife. In 2019, Chicago social worker Anjanette Young came home from work while in the middle of relaxing and undressing either to get in the shower or out of the shower, police officers broke into her apartment. They screamed and shouted at her, pointed weapons at her, and they handcuffed her, nude. She told them at least 43 times that they were in the wrong house. They didn't listen. They also didn't care about covering her body making her feel safe once they went through the home and saw that there was no one else there. There wasn't even any um, items in the home that would make it appear that the person they were looking for was in the house. They still didn't bother to cover her up for quite some time. And even then it was a lackluster attempt. I was humiliated for her watching that video. They were there because an informant told them that there was a felon with a handgun. As we all know, that's illegal. Felons aren't allowed to own uh, firearms, which is why there were so many police officers with such heavy artillery to begin with. Now, I wasn't able to find out, but I presume that the felon that they believed had a handgun was a violent felon. And so they were expecting some pushback from that person when they went to go arrest them for for being in violation. Turns out that the felon they were seeking was on house arrest right next door awaiting trial. She stood there for 20 minutes, exposed. They gave her a jacket where they put it over her back and her shoulders, not the front of her. They didn't let her sit down on her couch, at least, and then try to cover her up with her blanket. Um, Eventually, they did put a blanket on her. One person actually um, eventually put it on her and crossed the front of it. Um, Even then, it was still minimal coverage. Um, And I could be wrong, but from what I saw in the video, he appeared to be black, but I can't be sure. Two years later, there's been no discipline. And I say there's been no discipline because if you haven't heard about any discipline, there wasn't any. Because this is something that you would want everyone to know. That when you found out that your officers had the wrong home, you took steps to make sure that this never happens to another U.S. citizen again. But we're not hearing anything. That's because nothing's been done. Mayor Lightfoot says that this didn't happen during her tenure. And of course, in short, that she supports the victim, Anjanette Young. However, the Chicago Police Department attempted to block the video release after denying her FOIA request in 2019, FOIA's Freedom of Information Act. She requested the video, um, obviously, because she uh, was seeking litigation, but also for her own reasoning, she wanted to see all of the other things, all of the other things that she didn't um, get to see or hear while she was there being held in the house. One of the things she wasn't able to see or hear was the officers going outside to the car, flipping through the pages and realizing they were in fact at the wrong house. One of the things she wasn't privy to was when they realized they were in uh, the wrong house, they turned off their body cam to have further discussions about it. Ultimately, a judge ruled against them and released the video, which we're all just now seeing, of course, thankfully, with certain things edited and, of course, with Anjanette Young's permission.
These officers knew they were wrong. We know that from what we saw in the video. But I'm not giving Mayor Light for the pass either because she didn't intervene. She didn't intervene when the Chicago Police Department attempted to block the video for release. Now, granted, this may not have happened on her watch. Like she may not have been in office when they busted into her house and humiliated her like that, but she was in office when they tried to stop the video from being released to the public and she did nothing about it. These people treated her like she was less than human. And I agree with her attorney that had she been a white woman, they would have immediately seen the fragility of a woman in a situation surrounded by a good five or more men with weapons. The thing she's not thinking about is whether or not they have a body cam and whether or not she's safe. And even if she had that thought, they're able to turn them off without consequence. I for one think that no officer should be able to, nor should they be allowed to, turn off their body cams. In fact, I feel that the moment an officer turns off their body cam, they should be immediately removed from the force because why are you turning it off? It's supposed to protect all parties involved. I took this story especially hard, not only because it was a human being being treated like an animal, being humiliated, and the fact that they're still denying her justice to this day. But I took interest in it also because of my own story. It wasn't nearly as bad as what she experienced, but it was still traumatizing nonetheless. When I was 19 years old, I live in Los Angeles County, specifically the San Fernando Valley. My mother was a real estate agent and a property manager, sometimes made a little extra money on the side, we being me and my boyfriend, by helping people clear out their apartments, um, clear out their homes um, so that they can prepare it for sale so that um, when the keys are delivered to the person who purchased the property or rented the property, they could just basically walk right in. They didn't have to have someone clean it. Well, on this particular day, we got there extremely early in the morning a white female neighbor from across the street saw us. She approached us, we were very kind. Um, and I should say just for the record, yes, I was 19, but I looked about 12 or 13 and I know this because every time I attempted to uh, walk to Cal State Northridge to school, um, the high school that's on that same street, I believe it's called Monroe High School, um, I would have to pass by that school to go from my home um, to school right under the 118 freeway. Uh, and police officers would always pull me over and, you know, where you headed, kid, you know, they really thought I was a kid skipping school. And apparently that school had some issues with truancy because they were all over it. And after a while, they put my name in the system and my description in the system so that they could stop thinking that I was, you know, a runaway kid or a truant child. So that being said, that's what I looked like on that day. And I was there to clean. So I had a pair of Winnie the Pooh and Tigger overalls that I bought from Walmart, a pair of tennis shoes, had my hair pinned up with a couple of clips in it, so I really looked like a child. I weighed about 98 pounds. Um, I'm only 5'1", for those who are wondering. That's still pretty tiny, but I was extremely tiny. This neighbor approached us and we were polite because the way my mother was, everyone's a potential client in real estate. She comes over and asks who we were and what we were doing and where were the people who lived there, that they were close friends of hers, which we knew was a lie because she would know that their house had sold um, about 15 days before this. And that's what we told her. They sold their house. Um, they left the state, but the house needs to be in a certain condition um, in order for escrow to close, um, you know, without any problems. So we were there to help clean it out that we were going to be there all day it was a house that they had rented out, so the tenants weren't very kind to it. 
the neighbor was annoyed um, that the neighbor had that the person had sold to um, a property management company who was going to bring in more renters. They actually had some sort of animosity between the two of them because apparently um, my mother's client had allowed uh, renters in and they felt that brought about the community, the property values of the, the neighborhood. So she already had a chip on her shoulder and was already annoyed, but understood that we were there to help empty out a building. There was no furniture, all trash. I mean, it was just trash bags after trash bags after trash bags coming in and out of the house. Then nightfall came and we were moving slower. We're tired. We're at the base now where it's time to bust out the pine saw, the Windex. We've got the bright yellow gloves. We've got the apron. We finally got all the trash out of there, got everything moved out of there, got the dumpster carried away. And now we're scrubbing. I mean, and we're tired. This is the end of it because the other people are coming in the very next day. So this really was a last minute thing. That neighbor called 911 and said that we were robbing the place and that we had cleaned it out. So let's be clear, she waited until we were done cleaning up all the trash outside the front yard, cleaning up all the trash outside the backyard, tearing down things that were hanging from trees, scrubbing up graffiti on the outside wall. She waited until we cleaned everything up to say that we had cleaned out a house that there was nothing left. That was strategic. She knew what she was doing. I kept hearing a helicopter, but again, this is Los Angeles. Then I saw a light come through the window. We had taken down all the curtains, all the curtain rods. Remember this place is supposed to be stripped bare and painted white. My mother was down the hall and around the corner, um, basically polishing off everything and closing the doors, turning off lights and fans so that we would know that that room was done. My boyfriend was at the opposite end of the hallway doing the same thing. And I'm there, um, I believe I was cleaning a countertop. So my back was to the window and I kept stopping because I heard something. I heard a voice, but it wasn't clear. And I believe what it was is it could have been coming from, I don't know, the helicopter. I don't know where it was coming from, but it wasn't clear enough. And I just thought, oh, <laughs> that's LA. Somebody's, you know, somebody's driving from the cops. At this time, there was a high-speed chase every five minutes. So I really thought it was something like that going on. So I just kept cleaning. Then I noticed that it was getting bright in there. And every so often, if I would see it and I would try to look. And I just thought maybe the street lights are really bright. I mean, I really just, it really wasn't registering that there was a helicopter shining a light in the, the, the home and that they were trying to get my attention. Then we happened to come outside because we had literally just finished. Now we're about to load all our cleaning supplies back in the car, um, take the last little couple of bags of trash and the paint. So we're coming down with, you know, our first round of things. And as soon as we walk out, we're face to face with guns, with scopes, uh, guns with red laser pointers. And I will never forget walking out um, from the top of the stairs. It was, um, there were two entrances to this house. Um, and I was at the top of the stairs at the second entrance and I was on the landing and I looked up and there was a red dot on my forehead. And I was looking at the officer who was kind of beneath me because he was on the stairs. And he's, I can't see him. He's in what I would call SWAT gear, but he doesn't have the word SWAT on his uniform. I couldn't hear a word he said, but I know he was speaking clearly. I couldn't hear a thing. 
I froze. I was terrified. If I could have wet my pants, I probably would have. The only gun I'd ever seen in real life up to that point was my mother's 22, and she taught me how to use it in case someone ever broke into the home. And the other gun I'd seen before that was her military issue weapon, which I saw at a glance as she put it away when she left the military. So being in that position, I had never seen a gun like that in real life. They grabbed me, of course, dragged me down the stairs, um, took me down to the grass in the front yard, my boyfriend as well, and there was dog shit on the ground. <laughs> there, just, there was dog shit. And they wanted my mother to get face down on the ground. My mother said, I'm not getting on the ground. And I felt my heart jump into my throat because I knew my mother was extremely argumentative and not in a bad way. My mother was born in 1960. She was born and raised in Memphis, Tennessee. So she was not about to let some white police officer make her lay down in dog shit. She was not about to let some white police officer beat her or, or uh, any act of police brutality against her. She was former military. She was going to fight this person. And all I kept thinking is that man is going to kill my mother. My boyfriend immediately complied. He was already on the ground face down. Once they brought me down to the light, the other officers told them, don't put her down there. Um, I think this was because they thought I was a kid. Um, they saw my wallet in my back pocket. They pulled it out, realized I was not a child. Then they put me down, face down on the grass, handcuffed me. And let me tell you, something happens to your spirit when you feel that cold metal on your wrist. Doesn't matter that you didn't commit a crime. It doesn't matter that you didn't do anything wrong. Something happens to your spirit. Something happens to your body when those hands, handcuffs click on your wrists. And I remember not saying a word. I remember being devoid of any type of reaction. I now know that this was described as my trauma response that ultimately led to PTSD from this situation. My mother is yelling right back at this cop. I don't give a bleep what you say. You can pull that trigger if you want to. I'm not laying in no dog shit. Eventually he stopped yelling at her to realize what she's saying and he moved her over away from the dog shit and then had her lay down because he was too busy trying to force her to comply to realize that oh okay let me just let me just move her and then she complied once they realized that this was all a lie once they realized that the neighbor knew we were there because we told them she knew we were there we told them her name we told them what house she was in so they knew we weren't lying and they instantly realized this person did this on purpose because they're black there was no apology from the police officers there are no consequences for what they did remember they thought I was a child and there was a laser sighted gun pointed at my forehead. They actually had the nerve to admonish us for having the nerve to be moving after dark. Apparently there's some ordinance or law that says that you can't move um, after eight o'clock at night. I don't know if it's a noise thing or whatever, but how many times have you tried to move and you grossly underestimated how much stuff you had and it's after dark and you just got to get out tonight and you're going to have to pay more, you know, out of your deposit. You've just, you've got to keep plugging away at it. We've all been there at least once in our lives, but they blamed us because it was after eight o'clock. There were no consequences for that white female neighbor. It was clear to them 
that this is what she wanted. Part of me feels she wanted us to die, but there was no consequence for that neighbor. It was at that moment that when it came to white police officers, I was not a human being. I could have died. Again, they believed I was a child. Afterwards, I went to a Denny's to go get something to eat and I couldn't eat. We must have looked so shaken because everyone around us just kept staring at us, wondering what was going on with us. We looked suspicious, but not in a way that made them feel like they needed to be alert, but more like concern. Um, one person even asked if they thought that, you know, if we thought they should call the police, do we need some help with something? Um, and then again, you have to remember, I look like a child and my boyfriend was seven or eight years older than me, so it really didn't look good. And it was in that moment that I had my first panic attack. I couldn't breathe. I couldn't. My chest hurt. Remember, I had lost all emotion, all ability to react, all ability to speak. I was, for lack of a better term, catatonic at that point. Until that moment when I began to recount what happened and, and speak incredulously, you know, about what I had just experienced, processing, realizing there was a gun at my head. And then it finally got to the point where I kept repeating, he had a gun at my head. He had a gun at my head. And some of the patrons heard it and began to realize, oh, you know, maybe she's been robbed. They, they didn't know what to think, but you could see that they felt bad for us to the point that my meal was comped. Um, didn't realize I had been, you know, speaking that loudly, but I had my first panic attack. And that woman came over and she brought me something warm to drink. The only thing she could think of to give me was coffee, which wasn't necessarily the best thing, but it helped. The warmness, you know, distract me from the pain I was feeling in my chest. I had other realizations. That was when I decided to leave that boyfriend because during the encounter, um, he's, he's Mexican, by the way, during that encounter, he immediately disassociated from me and my mother. Oh, I'm just here to help clean up. I don't know what they're doing. You do know what we're doing. We're all here together. And I was so ashamed that I had picked that person as a boyfriend. I ended the relationship immediately. My best friend in that situation ended up becoming my best ally. She's from the Bay Area and um, her mother had a, a struggle with heroin. So she had frequent encounters with social services. Um, her family members had um, some criminal activity. So um, there was a lot of police interaction and she had ample reason to never trust a police officer. But I had maybe two experiences with police officers and in both situations, they were there to protect me. And I didn't know what to do with those feelings. So I talked to my best friend about it and explained to her what I was feeling. And that's when she said, you had a panic attack. We need to get you to a doctor so that they can, you know, get you medication for it. So you can get, you know, therapy. She was very big on therapy. Ultimately, she did become a therapist herself. And she became my best ally. She supported me in my decision to break up with my boyfriend because as a white passing Mexican, he immediately used that privilege to disassociate from the two of us um, in that same situation. Now, mind you, I'm the only dark skinned person out of the three of them. My mother was the same skin color as him, um, but still he immediately disassociated with the rest of us and, you know, basically took the stance of I'm just a white guy here minding my business. So she fully supported me in that decision. And when he tried uh, endlessly to get back in contact with me, she was there to basically block the bullshit. But the most important thing she did for me was she allowed me to cry. 
I was always taught to never cry, never, ever cry. And the only thing that felt right, the only thing that I could get out when I couldn't talk was tears. And they flowed constantly for about the first two weeks. And every time it happened, my best friend said to let it out. She was there. She let me know that there was never a reason for me to feel stupid, that I had every entitlement to the emotions that I was feeling, that if I didn't recover from what I experienced for years, that that too was normal. And that was so crucial because here we are now, I'm a college graduate, I'm a mother, I'm, you know, I'm a wife and she's married as well. And we look back at that time and she says to me, you're not over it, are you? And I said, no, I'm trying to be. And she said, you might as well stop because it'll never happen especially when things like what happened to this woman in Chicago, social worker, Anjanette Young, are still happening. She said the difference between you and that woman is that she was in her home and she was naked, but you both thought you were going to die. You both have been irreparably traumatized from the situation. You both will never recover from what was done to you. And neither one of you will probably ever trust the police. And up to that point, both of you had full faith in police officers. It was part of her job to believe in police officers. Police officers saved your life on at least two occasions. And now you're both faced with the reality that cops are not heroes, at least not for the two of us. So that's my story. Um, again, it's nowhere near as bad as Anjanette Young's. Um, but I can say that on some level, I fully understand what she's feeling. And I truly hope that she receives justice and ample financial compensation to make up for the lifetime of therapy, possible medication she's going to need to be able to process this um, possibly for the rest of her life. I feel that they are responsible for what they did and that they should be held accountable, they being the Chicago Police Department. Thank you for listening to this episode. Again, if you'd like to sponsor, you can at The Red Housewife on Twitter or go to anchor.fm slash theredhousewife.com.